The Start On Demand. I have been looking forward to our next guest for a couple of weeks now, but before we bring in Lyndon McIntyre, we want to congratulate congratulate Brad Archibald. He, in fact, won a coin toss for our best story on superstitions <laughs> because uh, it was so close for us. We couldn't decide. So Brad uh, shared his story of playing on a hockey team whose goaltender went on a six-game winning streak. And his superstition was not to change his underwear between uh, wins. So it uh, was a little gnarly, shall we say. Yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a little gross. <laughs> Lyndon McIntyre, you will recognize his name, only uh, has only won uh, two handfuls of Gemini Awards for his broadcasting career. He uh, was a journalist on the Fifth Estate, one of the distinctive voices and great storytellers in our culture. And uh, now he's a novelist who's winning all sorts of awards uh, with fiction. And we welcome him to our program now to talk about his latest book, The Only Cafe. Thank you, Mr. McIntyre. Well, it's a great honor to meet you. Well, it's a great pleasure to be here. We appreciate uh, your time. And, and you, you in my mind, you are a treasure. And the first thing well, I said to Brett was, when I read this book, am I going to have to do it in Lyndon McIntyre's pacing and in his distinctive <laughs> voice? Because you have one of those okay. great voices. <laughs> Enough about me. <laughs> how, how, did you, how did you get in this world? We were talking off air, and you know what? We've got to share the story about okay. how, you, how you came to write and to, to be a storyteller. Well, I grew up in a storytelling tradition called... You know, people drifted through the house. There was no TV. There was no, you know, movies. There was nothing. People coming and going and, and taking the events of the day and, and packaging them into little anecdotes, which were sort of stretching truth here and there. And they were they were structured in such a way that you get a laugh at the end or you get a nod. And it was it was just it was it was a kind of an art form that you took for granted. And I always admired people who could do that. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. I went through a whole bunch of boyhood kind of fantasies. and I, But at the end of the day, I, I, I went to university because I didn't know what else to do. And then I got out of university and I, uh, I, got, I was always interested in storytelling and I saw journalism as a place where you could get paid for doing it. Not much, but anyway. So I, I, I took some night courses in journalism. And, uh, and at the end of the, the, the winter that I took the night courses, I, uh, the, the courses were taught by working people, like managing editor of the paper, uh, uh, a radio producer, a TV producer, and a public relations guy. So at the end of it, I, I started asking around about summer jobs, and, uh, and I was offered two. I was offered a job on the newspaper, and I was offered a job as, a, as a, actually a TV producer. So um, I went to uh, the uh, radio producer and I said, if you were in my shoes, which job would you take? And I thought he'd say, oh, your radio. Anyway, I didn't know what I wanted. He says, no, you want to take the newspaper job. I said, well, why would you say that? And he said, because if you're in either television or the radio, you're going to end up just rewriting wire copy uh, and, and newspaper stories for people to read on television or on, on the radio. Whereas if you go to work in the newspaper, they'll kick you out the door and, uh, and you'll start doing your own stories immediately. Do that. And then if you like radio or television, then you can segue back into, the, into that realm, but you'll have some basic skills doing it. So, so were that's, you, that's how it started. Were you ultimately grateful for that advice? Was it the right uh, advice? It, it, yeah, absolutely it was. I, I went into newspapers and uh, uh, became so good at it <laughs> that I got fired. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah, I got fired. How's uh, that? 
Well, you know, it was a, it was complicated. Like I started to bang heads against the bosses, which was a fine tradition in 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 the newspaper business. Uh, you know, I'd I'd grown up with stories of the famous reporter who punched out the managing editor and got fired and went on to glory. So I thought butting butting heads was all part of the package. And, and uh, one day I was called in by the entire board and the staff of the senior management and told that that as of two hours after this meeting, I was gone. And uh, But by then, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd got a bit of a reputation uh, as a reporter as opposed to a headbutter. And uh, within a few days, I was offered a job in radio and in television and in other newspapers. Well, and thank I goodness. Yeah, you know, television looks interesting. And thank goodness for that. And I wasn't laughing at the fact you got fired. It was how you phrased it. Uh, and it's it's kind of those uh, those maritime sensibilities, right? The, the way you phrased yeah, well, it, right? We're well, going to free up your future, Lyndon. But you know, when you're in your 20s and 30s, this stuff goes off your back. I had children. I was living in a house that the company owned because uh, I had to have an office in the basement and they wanted to have a house that could accommodate everything. So I, as of 5 o'clock that afternoon, I had no place to live, theoretically, and I had uh, three kids living there, and uh, f- four at that point. And so um, I said, okay. So they called me back in the next morning and said, you know what, we can, we can talk about this and you can live in the house until you get another job. But anyway, that was the way it was. And when you're, when you're like, I was 31 or 32, yeah, what the hell, the world is my oyster. And uh, that's how I got through it. You said you had four kids at that point. How many do you, how did you end up with in total? I ended up with five. Yeah, then, I, then I found out what caused them and no more. <laughs> You bought you bought a television. I bought a TV. <laughs> so in 2009, you're nominated for uh, the Giller Prize nomination for one of your novels, The Bishop's Man, and you were quoted as saying you you felt like an interloper. Do you still feel like an interloper all these years later? I'm afraid so, because uh, I feel like a reporter. Um, I never felt like an interloper, interloper as a reporter. I don't know why. Again, maybe it's probably, I was very young when I became one. Uh, and it just sort of seemed natural to me to be that way. And then at a certain point in my reporting life, I realized you got an awful lot of... I don't know if you guys still use the phrase over matter. Uh, when I was in the radio, you always had a big basket full of stuff that, you know, uh, if something fell through, you went in the basket, and what can we use? So we, we had a bunch of overmatter. And, and I found that at a certain point in my reporting life, I had an awful pile of overmatter, stuff that never got used. Uh, you, take the, you take the most interesting, immediate stuff in the situation you're reporting on, and you put that out there, and then the rest of it kind of sits there. And, and after I had been doing it for 25 years or so, I had an awful lot of stuff. And some of it was troubling stuff. Some of it was fascinating stuff that I couldn't stop thinking about. And one day I got the idea, maybe, you know, maybe I can transform that into different kinds of storytelling. And, uh, you know, and as a kid, I had nothing better to do than read books and novels and stuff, comic books. <laughs> and, and I always admired people who can tell stories that way. So I said, look. Try my hand at that. So I started to take a lot of ideas that were the product of many years of exposure to different people and situations, and then to try to to give those ideas substance by pulling 
material out of the overmatter baskets and, and wrapping them around some of these ideas and building characters out of the many, many interesting people I'd met in my life. And uh, it, it worked so far. So tell us about this book before we let you go. Can you set the stage for us? And, yes. And how much uh, over matter is involved in this story, or is this a all lot, a, a lot more than I planned? Okay. Um, I had an idea of a story about how uh, violence infects memory, and memory it sometimes breaks down into shame and embarrassment and and guilt, and uh, and I had the idea that uh, when you're when you're ashamed of a big hunk of your life. Uh, a lot of people real close to you don't understand what your problem is because you don't want to share it with them. And there's a lot of alienation and estrangements comes up between parents and their children because the parent walls off a part of who he or she is. So this is a, an idea I wanted to explore. And then I realized, you know, back in the 80s, I, I did quite a bit of coverage of conflict situations in Central America and in the old Soviet Union and in Lebanon. And most immediately in Lebanon, because it was fairly easy to get at and to get into, and and uh, and I guess the the centerpiece of my journalism in that period of time, as it is the centerpiece in this novel, is a horrific massacre that happened in Beirut in September of 1982. I was in the region at the time. Uh, of course, I didn't know it was happening. I didn't know it was going to happen. And I got ordered to go up to Beirut to cover a different story. And by the time I got there, this, there had been this three-day killing spree by a phalangist uh, military unit uh, under, you know, under the enablement of, of the Israeli armed forces. And um, they had gone into a camp. They killed approximately 2,000 old people, women, and children. Uh, just in a, in a revenge slaughter, and you know, but by the time I got there, we weren't allowed in. But I got a very enterprising cab driver, who took me and a cameraman and a sound technician in through the back way, and we got into this. And, um, and it was a day that I could never quite forget. Just wandering around, I mean, you, you automatically think, "Oh my God, it must have been shocking to see dead people." No. What was most shocking to me was to see the survivors of it and the effect it had. Dead people are gone. They're not going to cause you any more problems. But the people that survived, they're the ones you've got to sort of pay attention to. And, and especially the young guys, the kids. There were, there were boys, you know, 12, 13 years old, and suddenly they had the faces of bitter old men. And I saw that and I said, oh, my. What happened here the last three days does not stop here. It continues through time. It continues through space. Wherever those boys go, all this will go with them. And we better be careful and we better be, we better be ready for it. And we better try to do something to mitigate it before it turns into more tragedy. And, of course, it has. Everywhere you look today, stuff like this is, is, is har turned into a harvest of pain, suffering, violence, tragedy, migration, massacre. You can just go on and on. Every time you read a newscast, you're, you're seeing the consequences of this kind of stuff. Well, we talk about residential schools right in our own country, Absolutely. right? And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, they, they bear the fruit. Uh, we're not quite sure when Absolutely. they will. We only they know will. for sure that it will. Yep. And it's not just uh, the individuals that went through this system. It's, it's their kids. And it's their kids' kids. And it's a whole lot of families that maybe never got into the, the system, but their brothers and sisters did. And, you know, there's a harvest of bitterness and there's a harvest of anger and there's a harvest of, of, of um, distress that, that shapes how people think and behave. 
And, and that's the problem with violence, whether it's the violence of a massacre in Beirut or the violence of a, of a, of a forced relocation of a kid from his family and his community into an institutional environment that he can't really live with. All, all this is violence. And, and, the, and, and the consequence of violence, they travel in different ways through time and space for generations to come. Lyndon, are you doing a book signing at McNally Robinson or anything I like am that? this evening, yes, and I'm looking forward to that because it's, a great, it's one of the great bookstores. I'm not just saying that because these kinds of bookstores are becoming rare in our culture. And they are institutional, they're cultural institutions now. And people like McNally Robertson, Ben and McNally in Toronto and uh, Monroe's and, you know, like across this country, there are little islands of civilization that are called really good bookstores. And uh, so I'm happy to be going to McNally Robinson tonight. I only wish we had more time with you, sir. Yeah, it's a I'd pleasure like, to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Lyndon McIntyre, his name. The book is called The Only Cafe. The Start On Demand is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.